Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to pray, to come into your presence, and to be at a place that feels like home. I just pray that you would bless us now with your presence, with your peace, and that you would reason with us this morning on why this movement matters, and that you would speak clearly in a way uh, that all of us can understand and retain. And I ask this now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why Adventism matters. So in the sanctuary service, there were two main things that took place, two main events. There were the daily occurrences and the yearly occurrences, the daily services and the yearly service. The daily service in the sanctuary economy involves sin being transferred into the sanctuary, right? When you sinned, you had to confess your sin and you had to kill the animal yourself and the priest transferred that blood on your behalf into the sanctuary and you could leave that sanctuary gate forgiven. This is where Jesus' ministry is represented as a lamb. Uh, Jesus is referred to by John, I believe in John chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, but he also serves the role of the priest. So the, the sanctuary service in the Old Testament was not something that God just thought, how do I keep these people busy so they don't kill themselves or do something stupid? The whole point of the sanctuary service was to teach them about the upcoming ministry of Jesus. And Jesus not only fills the role of the lamb, he also served as our priest, as a mediator, someone on our behalf. So that priest was the one who transferred the sin into the sanctuary on your behalf and ministered for you. Jesus actually filled both of these roles. The yearly service on the Day of Atonement was a transference of that sin out of the sanctuary. All the record, they kind of come in there for the first 359 days of the year, their calendar is 360, they would transfer that sin out of the sanctuary and no record would remain there on the Day of Atonement. This is the second phase of atonement and where Jesus' priestly ministry is, is necessary. And we'll cover more of this here in a moment. But these are the two main ministry services that happen in the sanctuary. The Day of Atonement and the Investigative Judgment. We, as the Seventh-day Adventist movement, believe in the Investigative Judgment, and its background is from the Day of Atonement. Some may wonder, is this teaching even in the Bible? Like, is this just something that your church founders believe? Or is this actually in the Scriptures? I'm just going to give some brief references on places where the investigative judgment is alluded to in Scripture. Uh, in Exodus chapter 25, verses 9 and 40, we're told that the sanctuary on earth was based upon a pattern in heaven. These are going to be rapid-fire references. Maybe you just want to write down the reference. And I'm going to leave my slides with Ryan and Christy to ensure that you guys can have access to them uh, because there's more I need to do than I have time to do. But uh, the first, so the point is the sanctuary that was made on earth was based upon a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. This is alluded to in Hebrews. We'll come back to that text. Leviticus chapter 16 explains the Day of Atonement, which was the type that explained what's happening in the investigative judgment. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10, there's a... Uh, alluded to, you have like the Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the division of Rome, you have the second coming that are alluded to in the beasts of Revelation in Daniel 7. But after that situation, we see just before the second coming that the books are open and a court is seated. There's this allusion to the fact that there's a judgment that takes place just before the second coming of Jesus. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, we're told that unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And to a Hebrew mind, when you heard of a cleansing of a sanctuary, the immediate thought that came into their mind was judgment. Because that's what happened on the Day of Atonement. Judgment was taking place. 
So this is alluded to in Daniel 8 and verse 14. In Daniel chapter 9, we're told when the 70 weeks and the 2300 days begin, two-time prophecies that merge together to explain what we believe in that movement. And then in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, we're told that Jesus is a minister of a true tabernacle in heaven and that the earthly temple is a copy or a shadow of this one. So there's actually a sanctuary in heaven. Jesus is the minister of this, we're told, in the book of Hebrews, which makes sense that the sanctuary that was made on earth was made after a pattern. That's where the original source was, in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. Hebrews 9, 11, and also 23 to 24. It's alluded to here as well. Then in Revelation chapter 10, there's this experience of John is walking through experientially what the Advent movement is going to deal with. A tremendous, heartbreaking disappointment. This is actually prophesied in Revelation. So sometimes there's this belief that Seventh-day Adventists believe that Jesus was coming in 1844, which first of all isn't true. The Seventh-day Adventist church didn't even exist yet. They didn't exist until 1863. So it was actually Baptist, Methodist, and other Protestant denominations who were believing that Jesus was coming very soon. But that disappointment, people think that they were all wrong, they were dead wrong, because obviously Jesus didn't come. But the unique and awesome thing is, this very event was prophesied in the book of Revelation, chapter 10. This was foretold long before, and had they known that this is what was going to happen, they wouldn't be disappointed, right? They came to find this out through further study, Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, talk about the dead being judged and the Ark of the Covenant being seen in the heavenly sanctuary. The Ark of the Covenant was the main piece of furniture that was used on the Day of Atonement that was the, the, the piece of focus on the Day of Atonement. Talking about a judgment and an Ark being seen. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, we're told that the... Uh, the first angel saying to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. There's a current tent judgment taking place soon before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 15 talks about a close of probation uh, through whenever the, the cleansing of the sanctuary has basically finished. And then last in Revelation chapter 22 verses 11 and 12, there's this point in time in which those who have chosen to walk in righteousness will remain righteous. Those who've chosen to walk in rebellion will remain in rebellion. I know this is a really fast overview. Forgive me for time's sake. I can't do all of what needs to be done. Um, but this is just kind of some text in scripture that allude to the events of the investigative judgment that it, we're seeing it from all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here's the point. Even though your, your sins needed to be in the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement to ensure that you could be right with God when that Day of Judgment was happening, it was very important to a Hebrew to afflict their soul and to ensure that their hearts were right before God on the Day of Atonement, that their sin had been found in the sanctuary. It needed to be there by this day. But the beautiful thing is there was a morning and an evening sacrifice that was offered every day throughout the year, including the Day of Atonement. And this service was meant to cover the sins of the people that they did not know they had committed, the sins of ignorance. And if, so when you committed a sin that you knew needed to be dealt with, you were the one that took the walk of shame from your tent all the way through. I mean, just imagine you leave your tent, you have an animal with you, and you're going towards a tabernacle. What do you think everyone in town is thinking? Bob sinned. Right? He, he's going, he's got to deal with that. But if there were things that you did not know that you had committed, there was actually provision made for this. Right? You did not understand that you had done something in the morning and the evening sacrifice. And this even takes place on the Day of Atonement. So some people are really spooked by the teaching of the investigative judgment because they feel like, ah, oh, I don't stand a chance. Like, what are there things I don't know about? 
God made provision for this, and that even took place on that day. This is a quote from one of our scholars. The daily services at the tabernacle went on every day of the year without cessation, even on the weekly Sabbath, as well as during the pilgrim feasts. By God's specific command, the Tamid was never to be omitted. The sacrifices connected with these festive days were presented in addition. This was also true of the Day of Atonement. The constant morning and evening services embraced the special ceremonies of the day, like two loving arms. So there were these two loving arms of mercy at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, that embraced the people. The daily was thus the very foundation of the entire sacrificial system, and nothing was permitted to interfere with it. It pointed directly to the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it would be as sensible to omit the daily from the worship of Israel as it would to take the cross from that of Christians. The liturgy of the morning was repeated in the evening. This still happened all throughout that time. Now, this is where we, this is just kind of a, a preface to where we're going this morning, but this is where our view of the atonement and the sanctuary sets us part, apart as a movement from many other Protestants, our understanding of a two-phased atonement. We'll explain why this needs to exist in a moment. But the investigative judgment, what's basically taking place during that time, is the books of life are being investigated. You know, who's chosen Christ, who has not chosen Christ, and to make those records clear. Once this has taken place and finished, then of the record of the dead, then there has to be an investigation into the living before Jesus can come. And when that time of transition takes place, it's kind of a big deal. Right? Our sins need to be in the sanctuary once that takes place. But the investigative judgment is not just something that's happening in that sense. It's not just Jesus cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. It's also a time in which the same high priest is sanctifying you to ensure that you can stand during that time while you're living. Does that make sense? So he's not just doing a work of cleansing the record of sin from those who are dead. He's also doing a work to ensure that you can stand without a mediator, someone who can offer those sacrifices on your behalf or to, to transfer that blood on your behalf. Because it just makes sense. If you're cleaning a room, it's very difficult to make any progress if people keep throwing dirt into that room, right? There comes a point in time in which nothing more can go in so that the work of cleansing can be finished. But that scares some people because they think, well, what am I going to do then? Like, am I going to stand a chance then? We're actually going to explain that here in just a moment. But that's the second work that Jesus is doing as the high priest to make sure that we can stand during that time. There's a quote that alludes to this that has, I want to deal with. That those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. And their robes must be spotless, their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there should be a special work of purification, of the putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. This happened during the Day of Atonement. People were afflicting their souls. They recognized that the time I'm living is somber, it's real. I need to make sure that I'm right with God. I've done the things that God would have for me to do. This work is more clearly represented or presented in the messages of Revelation chapter 14. So there's some things that scare some folks about this and that have made people wonder why we believe what we believe. So I want to deal with that. First is, what is the role of a mediator? Because we're not going to have one, we're told. And how do we exercise our diligent effort? First, the role of a mediator. Before I get into that, Scripture is abundantly clear that God wants all to be saved. Amen. Oh, without exception. God wants all to be saved, and God did what it took for all to be saved. Are you with me? 
So we need to make abundantly clear that when we start pack, unpacking these statements that may seem kind of hard and difficult, God is for you, not against you. He wants as many in as is possible. Amen? And it's easy for us to lose sight of that when we see statements that seem a little discouraging. So I want to deal with that. First of all, what's the role of a mediator? The role of a mediator was someone who transferred sin outside of the sanctuary into the sanctuary. That's what the role as a mediator was. That when you confessed your sin at the gate of the sanctuary and they caught the blood of the sacrifice that you had to kill yourself and carry that blood in and sprinkled it to the veil, they did this on your behalf as a mediator for you. They took that blood into the sanctuary for you. So in the context of this statement then, it logically follows that the sanctuary is being cleansed. There's going to come a time in which sin can't go in so that the cleansing can be finished, right? You don't want to keep putting dirt into a room. So Christ's role as a mediator ceases, but his role as Savior, as someone who loves you, who believes in you, that does not change. Are you with me? There's a big difference there. He can't put sin in the sanctuary anymore. He can't transfer it in, but he doesn't cease loving you, right? He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. These are not contradictory views. Those two can actually harmonize. That role of putting sin in has to stop, and that's the point. So the transferring role ceases, but Jesus doesn't cease to love you or be your Savior. Now, how do we exercise our diligent effort? This is what we're actually going to be covering for the remainder of the message. Now, in John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. That implies there's space. Amen? There's vacancy. And then he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Everything about this statement says, I want you there. I want you in. Amen? He wants this for us. He's preparing a place for us in heaven right now. What does that look like? It's not necessarily with a hammer and nails, right? And this is where I have a question and something that we should just earnestly and honestly reflect upon. If everything that was done at the cross is all that was needed for the salvation of man, why, pray tell, must suffering continue on this earth and Jesus tarry? Why are people still hurting and going through hardship and difficulty if this thing was wrapped up 2,000 years ago and nothing else was required? What's Jesus waiting on? Doesn't he care that people hurt and are going through difficulty? I believe that this is where the unique view of the two-phase atonement makes sense of that tarrying time, of that waiting time. So Jesus is preparing a place for you in heaven. He's preparing a kingdom for us by preparing a kingdom in us. The work of preparation that Jesus is doing is preparing your heart to stand during that time when there won't be a mediator. He's preparing your heart to be safe, to be someone who could be in heaven and enjoy heaven and not be a threat to heaven. Amen? This is the work he's doing. So he's preparing a kingdom for you by preparing a kingdom in you. Not only is he removing the record of sin in the sanctuary, he's also removing records of sin in our experience. He's giving us power to overcome through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. So how does that work? John chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Just imagine. The whole livelihood and happiness of the disciples and their confidence is based upon being next to someone who's always confident. And then this guy has the audacity to say, hey, I'm leaving, and that's a good thing. Excuse you? What do you mean that's a good thing? Like, we need you, Jesus. They did not understand Jesus' two-phase role. He's serving as a priest and as a lamb on their behalf. 
So he says, it's a good thing that I go, because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. I'm preparing a way for the spirit to do a work in your life that could not happen if I didn't leave. And so we're told that through the ministration of the Holy Spirit, souls are led to find forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit's ministry is of immense importance. And many of our people don't understand this. Many Christians don't understand this. And in turn, we're discouraged. We don't have assurance of salvation. We don't find victory in our lives because we don't understand what power is available to us. Jesus in his high priestly role is cleansing the sanctuary above of any record of our confessed sins. And he's using the spirit to cleanse the temple of our hearts here below so that we can be ready to live without someone filling that mediatory role. There's two different things that Jesus is doing. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Right? There's two sanctuaries that he's intentionally cleansing, me and the sanctuary above. And each day, we're taking a trip through the sanctuary. We're reconsecrating ourselves to God. We're reflecting upon the cross of Christ at the first piece of furniture at the altar, right? We're going through the process of, of regeneration, receiving the Spirit of God at the laver. And then we begin a process of communing with God in His Word at the table of showbread, communing with God in prayer at the altar of incense, sharing the light that we have at this stage at the lampstand. And every one of those things is with the intention that someday we're going to press beyond that veil and be like Jesus. And daily, we're having this experience. We're re being regenerated and changed day by day. The sanctuary service is this amazing lens to understand the plan of salvation and your purpose in life and the very ministry of Jesus. It's a great blessing to us. The sanctuary is a huge, huge interpretive lens we need to understand all of Scripture. So the end goal is to press beyond that veil. But the amazing thing is the closer you get to God, the further from God that you feel. Right? The more you grow closely to Jesus, the more of your weaknesses and your failures you find. And what does that lead you to do? Go right back to the altar and confess that sin. Reconsecrate yourself to God to ask to be filled with the Spirit. And this process continues. So the question then is, how do we get there? How does that transformation happen? Paul, maybe this feels like your experience. Paul in Romans 7 verses 18 and 24 says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, how much good dwells? Nothing. For to will is present with me. Like I have a desire for it, but how to perform it, that I don't find. You ever been there? I know what God expects, but I don't know how to get there. And many of our people, I believe, are in danger of this very situation. We've done a good job of communicating as a movement, to a fair degree, of what God expects at the end of the day. Right? We know what the model needs to look like at the end of the assembly line. We know what a fruit tree should look like when it's fully mature and fruit is on it. And so we assume that I need to look, I need to be a big honking fruit tree with fruit on it at the end of the day if I'm going to stand without a mediator. The problem is I'm not, so I, I need to be that if I'm going to be saved then. But then we look at our life and we realize I'm not that now. Am I saved now? Because we spent so much time communicating what we ought to be at the end, but we haven't done as good a job of communicating the process to get there. And how God views you while you're working through that process. So that's what we're going to cover now. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answers to those heart questions are found in Romans chapter 8. And text that we'll be going through this morning. So there are two primary functions the Holy Spirit serves to answer our question of how we get there. The first is to confirm, right? This is attributing the work of the Lamb on our behalf. And the second is to conform, to attribute the work of the priest, Right, the two roles that Jesus fills in the sanctuary service. To confirm, to conform. The first is to confirm. In Ephesians chapter 1, turn with me there. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. In him, in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the Spirit who serves as the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we hear the gospel, we believe, and we trust in Jesus. And when that happens, we're told the Holy Spirit seals us. This is kind of like the early rain experience, if you will, in the, in the early germination, when the seed is germinated at the beginning of the cycle. It acts as this purpose of sealing and testifying in heaven that this is a child of God, right? Guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. This ceiling literally serves as a guarantee or a down payment or deposit. When you have to buy a large ticket item, like no teenager is going to be able to walk into a Tesla dealership and say, hey, I want that one. And they say, no problem. Here's the keys if they even have keys. I couldn't tell you because I can't afford one. But whatever, how they operate, maybe they start with your iPhone. I don't fully know. But they're not going to do that. Like they're not going to hand you a high ticket item unless you can prove in some measure you're good for it. Are you actually going to be who you say you are? Are you actually going to be able to be good for this thing? And so you have to put money down to show that, hey, I'm for real. I can handle this. This, this is something that's going to take place. That down payment comes, and then you set a closing date, that by this date, I'm going to seal the deal. Right? The whole thing will be paid for, but the money up front shows that we're good for it. From the moment that we say yes to Jesus, the Spirit testifies in heaven on our behalf that heaven is now our home until Jesus comes to seal the deal at the second coming. But a huge disclaimer. This is not teaching once saved, always saved. This is not a situation in which just say a prayer once and you're good to go. What's being taught here is that from the time that you say yes to Jesus until Jesus comes, if you keep walking in this decision, the Holy Spirit is testifying on your behalf. This is a child of God. This is indeed a child of God. They are heaven-bound. This is the direction, the trajectory of their heart. This is all dependent upon us walking in that decision to accept Jesus and to follow the promptings of His Spirit. If you walk from that decision, the process starts all over again. But you can come back. Amen? You can come back. It's like getting your diploma on day one when you begin your schooling. And as long as you continue the process of staying in school, while you're growing in your gifts, better understanding what it is that you've been taught, you're, you're viewed as a graduate while they make you a graduate. This is basically the way that God deals with us if you stay in school. If you drop out, everything stops and re-enroll. Yeah? That's the way this process looks. Now, this ceiling is what's referred to as imputed righteousness or justification. Those are $50 words. We're going to identify them here. To, to impute means to attribute something, in this case, righteousness, to someone by virtue of what someone else has done in your behalf. So we receive the righteousness of Jesus, right? The imputed righteousness of Christ is credited to me because of something that he has achieved. And in that moment, I'm viewed as righteous. So when you say yes to Jesus, when you hear the gospel and believe in Jesus and surrender your life to him, you then are declared righteous because of the righteousness of another. That's what impute means. Justification is the act of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. Very similar things here. You're declared righteous. So this is a great definition. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. 
The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. So the first thing that takes place is this is a child of God, but then the next thing that needs to happen is someone needs to make us into a child of God and teach us how to live like a child of God. And we'll come back to that. We'll come back to this quote too and define those other two terms. Imparted righteousness is basically the tangible delivery of that righteousness. You receiving in tangible fashion the righteous life of Jesus. And sanctification is you being made into a Christ-like image. So the second aspect of confirming is in Romans chapter 8, Jesus confirming, the Holy Spirit confirming the decision that we make to accept Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. And yeah, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. This is a beautiful, beautiful promise. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are current tense children of God. Amen? So when you say yes to Jesus, he testifies in that moment, this is a child of God. You've been adopted into the royal family. We've been orphans. We've lived lives of, of being outcast and rejection. But in this stage, we, when we accept the gospel. We're accepted, right? We become a believer. When we become a believer, the Spirit confirms that you're a child of God. But when someone is adopted, you do not know how much is expected by this family, right? When you get adopted into a family, how much do you know about what's expected and how to get there? You don't know anything. What you know is that you're accepted, but you don't know what's expected. Are you with me? And so the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us in that condition. He first testifies to us and overwhelms us with the fact that this is your home. You can live here. We want you here. And then the Spirit begins his second work of confirmation, making us into a person who could live in that home in a way that would be happy and healthy, right? So when we did all of that, okay, go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Now the Holy Spirit begins to attribute the work of the priest on our behalf. The first work of cleansing us and justifying us is the work of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, that's when we're justified. But the work of the priest, now we find in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, For what the law could not do, save us, and that it was weak through the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law by itself, God did, God did on our behalf, by sending His own Son, by sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and flesh like ours. And on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh and overcame sin in the flesh. And here's why, according to verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what? To the Spirit. Literally, this is the work that Jesus intends to take place through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First, you're declared a child of God, that heaven is now your home. And then the next thing the Holy Spirit does is he doesn't leave you in that condition. He then says, now let me teach you how to live like a child of God. Let me begin this process of writing my law in your heart and in your mind and transforming your life. So Hebrews chapter 10 gives us another illusion of this transaction. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 15. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 15. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 15 says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. This actually is a quote from the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31, where we find the introduction of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is actually introduced in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Amen? The Old Testament is actually relevant. There's some good stuff in there, especially about the gospel and the plan of salvation. God here promises to write His law in our hearts and in our minds, and He also promises to remember our sins no more. And this almost sounds too good to be true, because our lives have been a mess. We've not succeeded in the Christian experience. How could He possibly do this? Because we brought those sins to Jesus, right? And He begins the process of writing His law in your heart and in your mind, teaching you how to live like a child of God, empowering you to live a sanctified life, a God-honoring, Christ-like life. He promises to empower us to do this through His Holy Spirit. This is actually the second time that Paul quotes Jeremiah 31. It's also in Hebrews 8. And, all right, so the Holy Spirit seals us when we believe the gospel, confirming that we're children of God and that heaven is our home. This is how He attributes Christ's work as the Lamb to us. Then He begins to teach us how to live like children of God by writing His law in our hearts and in our minds. And this is how He attributes the work of the priest to us, Right? Someone in tangible fashion who's advocating on our behalf and changing our lives. Ezekiel 36 alludes to another way in which he does this. Kind of more explanation of what we read about in Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 10, but we quoted Jeremiah 31. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. What we're going to be unpacking as we continue here is that the Holy Spirit literally is willing to deal with every deficiency in the human experience because God wants you in heaven. Amen? He's willing to do this work of transformation if we submit to the process, if we keep abiding in the vine, living our lives surrendered to the Spirit and its promptings. He does a mighty and powerful transforming work in our lives that we couldn't do for ourselves through His Spirit. Ezekiel 36 and verse 24, he says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and I'll bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. All the things that you're running to, to escape accountability to God, to escape religion. He says, I can cleanse you from all of that. You're running from God. He says, I can cleanse you from those things if you'll come to me. Verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you the ability to be able to feel again to have some form of appreciation for the things of God and some form of care for your fellow man. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our lives is not something that's just this willy-nilly, I feel good inside, but there's no change in the outward experience. That's not what God intends. Right? If people talk about a spirit-led life and it does not involve God transforming your life, it's not a spirit-led life. Amen? I thought I was at Advent Hope. Like, the Holy Spirit is meant to transform your life, not leave you the way He found you. Amen? Okay, just making sure I may have lulled you to sleep with the geeky stuff at the beginning, but hopefully we can raise the dry bones. So here's the point. You're dirty, I'll cleanse you. You got idols, I can get rid of them. You have a stony heart, I'll give you a new one. You're cold and indifferent, I'll help you be able to feel again. You can't obey, I'll empower you to obey. This is how desperately God wants you in heaven if you'll submit to the process. Yeah? The Holy Spirit is capable of doing these things in your life, but will you let Him? Will you say yes to the process? 
So by accepting the gospel, this grants the Holy Spirit access to begin His work of sealing us, right, justifying us, and transforming us, sanctifying us into Christ's image. So he immediately imputes, credits Christ's righteousness to you, thereby justifying you before the Father. But then he begins a process of imparting, delivering in a tangible fashion Christ's righteous life to empower you to receive and to live Christ's perfect life. So first he declares you as righteous, and then he begins the work of making you righteous. But here's the beautiful thing. While you're growing, you're going to stumble. You're going to have difficulties. But if you keep that heavenward journey, you are viewed as righteous while God makes you righteous. And that's good news. Many people quit because they think, I messed up. God doesn't want me anymore. That's not how this process works. If you keep abiding in the vine, if you keep trusting the process, and the trajectory of the heart is heavenward, and you keep that journey, He's going to empower you to overcome. Keep trusting the process. Don't let Satan discourage you off the battlefield. I'm coming to find that if Satan can't deceive you, he'll discourage you. So you may know the ins and outs of theology, but if you're so discouraged from messing up along the way and you quit, he still wins. This is why we cannot give up in the process. This is sanctification. Every step of the way, we stand justified before the Father if we continue to follow the promptings of the Spirit. And if you mess up on that, confess and come back and keep going. Our confessed sin is covered in the inside of the sanctuary, and He's purging us of the remaining sin to be able to stand without mediation. And now, this doesn't sound like legalism. This doesn't sound like kooky, crazy perfectionism. This is just common sense. He who began a good work in you will see it through. That's what this looks like. Again, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed, and the righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven, and the second is our fitness for heaven. Now, I had to deal with some nerdy things. If this hasn't made a lick of sense to you, it's about to get gooder right now, okay? If you haven't fully understood all of what's going on, and I apologize for that, I'll give my notes, and I'm happy to explain anything else to folks, but I, this clock is killing me right now. I just have to keep going. Caleb told me I could do this. It's his fault. Okay, and he's not here, so I don't feel bad about saying that. So here, this is from the book called Christ Object Lessons. It's just a commentary on the parables of Jesus. This explains the process of character transformation in clear, simple language, okay? The germination of the seed, that's when you say yes to Jesus, right, is, represents the beginning of the spiritual life, and the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of what? Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace, there can be no life without growth, Amen. We believe there will be transformation and growth. You're not just going to stay where Jesus finds you. The plant must either grow or die. But listen to this. As its growth is silent and what? Imperceptible but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. And this is where Satan barks up our trees all the time. Because we look, how many people in this room, and some people don't fully hear what I say, and they raise their hands and then feel embarrassed after the fact. So don't raise your hands. Um... But I'm going to ask you to raise your hands anyway, but just don't do it. So how many people in this room would think it would be reasonable for you to plant a shoot, like a sproutling of a tomato plant in the ground to water it, and then the next day to come out and to expect a full tomato plant with delicious tomatoes on it? How many people would think that's a reasonable thing to expect? No one raised their hand. Good. I should just tell you what to do from now on. Um, yeah, that would be, an, and would, would it be reasonable for you to be upset with that tomato plant for not being a full-grown tomato plant? That would be totally unreasonable, and yet we do the same thing to ourselves in character development. You say yes to Jesus, 
You, you get convicted, I need to start reading my Bible. I got to get serious about this. I'm going to have a devotional life. Let's go. And you start reading for like two weeks, and then Satan whispers in your ear and says, this isn't helping you. You yelled at your wife. You get angry at your kids. You still don't study for your tests. You're sleeping through things. You ought not to sleep through whatever. You, this is not changing you. It's doing nothing for you. Just give up on the whole thing. But what we lose sight of is the fact that this journey at times can be silent and imperceptible. But it's continuous. Amen? If you keep trusting the process, growth is happening that you know nothing of. And how fast you grow is none of your business. It's none of your business. It's Jesus' work of growth in you. Your responsibility is to stay in the soil. Your responsibility is to drink in the rain from heaven, to take in the nutrients from the soil, and to be a plant. Yeah? Listen to what, she, what we're told next. At every stage of development, our life may be what? Perfect. That tomato plant as a sproutling is exactly what it should be right now. It just got planted. It's a chill. It's viewed as perfect in the eyes of God right now. And if we're doing as God would have, if we're abiding in the soil, if we're trusting the process, He views us as righteous while He makes us righteous. Yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be what? Continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. But as our opportunities multiply, our experiences will enlarge and our knowledge increase. We shall become strong to bear responsibility, and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. In short, when you keep trusting, keep receiving, keep receiving the things that God offers for your growth, you're going to grow in proportion to that. But you're not going to grow if you let Satan convince you to pull yourself out of the soil. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 fleshes out something here that's really, really helpful. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Lord, have mercy on me with this clock. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you got anything right, God showed his own love for you by sending Jesus. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. Now, look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through what? The death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? By his life. This is amazing. Jesus, now I don't, I've not been in a math class for 14 years and hallelujah. I hated school. I'm not against school, just for me. Y'all can go, do your thing, no problem. But in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, there's this process of canceling out fractions. I don't even fully remember how it works. But the death of Jesus in Romans chapter 5, we're told, cancels out the death that you deserve because the wages of sin is death. Now, not to insult your intelligence, but you know what a wage is? It's what you deserve as a result of the work that you performed. And Jesus' death cancels out that debt that you deserve. Hey, that's great news. The problem is now I just have to live the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed. No problem. Otherwise, I'm going to go right back into debt. Are you with me? So I not only need someone to cancel out my debt, I... Oh, Sorry, I feel bad for Brad. He's taking notes with pictures, and I've just gone geeky for like 40 minutes. Sorry, Brad. I'm not going to feel bad about it if it doesn't look as awesome. Um, but So the first thing, he cancels out the death that you deserve, but I now need to live a life that I've not lived. 
Like if, if I sin in word, thought, or deed, I go right back into debt. So I need access to a life that I have not lived. And Jesus's life is that very thing. And the Holy Spirit makes that life available to me. Amen? It's really, really good news for us. Jesus' life gives us our fitness for heaven. So his work of canceling out debt is the work of the lamb. His work of giving us our fitness for heaven is the work of a priest. So if all I had, and this is super important, so then if all I had was the death of Jesus, I would have no hope of eternal life. This is why it's so important for us to believe in a two-phase atonement. Because my past debt would be clear, but I cannot live a victorious life going forward if I don't have something else. This is why we believe in that two-phase atonement. I need a life that I have not lived, and that is found in Jesus through the power of His Holy Spirit. So God does then desire us to live holy lives that are free from sin. Let's not run from that. And He does intend for us to overcome. If He didn't, why then did Jesus come to suffer, overcome, to die, and rise again? Was He just showing off? No, 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 no. He was making a way for you. He was overcoming to make a way to give you power to overcome. He's provided the means necessary for us to overcome by sending Jesus, right, to live a perfect life that we have not lived and empowering us to live Christ's life through His Spirit. That's how this is meant to work. So how does that happen? Two basic illusions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and beginning in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed. Why? lest he fall. But no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The word literally means to endure it. That means that every time we're tempted, God, through the promptings of his spirit, makes a way of escape for us. And I can look back at every time I've fallen in my Christian experience, and there was always a fork in the road moment. Right When I could do what I'm tempted to do, but then I hear the voice of Jesus telling me, there's another way out. There's another option. This is what he's referring to, which means that there's never a time then in which I actually have to sin. There's always a way out. There's never been a time when I've tempted that God did not make provision for me to get out of it and to make the right choice. And the Spirit is the one prompting us to make that choice, and it's the Spirit who can give us power to live that choice. It's amazing. Philippians 2 verse 13 alludes to something very similar. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and here's how. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's the Spirit of God that prompts you to have a desire to make another choice, and it's the Spirit of God that enables you to make that choice. Literally, you're not fighting this battle alone. The Spirit is there to accompany us and to help us. So when we're tempted, we're to ask for Christ's spirit of surrender to the will of God, who then enables our will to carry out God's will. All right, back to common folk language here that's super, super helpful, and I'll try to wrap this thing up as quick as I can. So the plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. It sends down its roots into the earth. It drinks in the sunshine, the dew, and the rain, and it receives the life-giving properties from the air. So the Christian is to grow by cooperating with the divine agencies, by responding when convicted, by receiving strength from the Spirit in those moments. Feeling our helplessness, we're to improve all the opportunities granted us to gain a fuller experience. As the plant takes root in the soil, so we're to take deep root in what? In Christ. And as the plant receives the sunshine, the dew, and the rain, we're to open our hearts to receive what? The Holy Spirit. 
The work is to be done, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If we keep our minds stayed upon Christ, he will come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. As the sun of righteousness, he will arise upon us with healing in his wings. We shall grow as the lily. We shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. By constantly relying upon Christ as our personal Savior, we shall grow up into him in all things who is our head. Everything that he's provided for us to receive our Christian growth, if we keep taking in these things and abiding in the vine and following the promptings of the Spirit, you will grow. Amen? Amen? You will grow. So the Holy Spirit allows us to receive everything that Christ has achieved and overcame on our behalf. And we can cry out in any moment of need to receive from God what Christ already earned. His lifestyle looked like this. He continually yielded his will, his power of choice to his Father, and abided in God. And we can receive that spirit of surrender. We can receive that. Romans 8.11 says that the very spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can bring life to your mortal body. It can raise us from spiritual death. If it can raise Jesus from the death, it can transform your life. Amen? Romans 8.32 says that if God wasn't willing to hold back anything on our behalf but was willing to give all of heaven in one gift, then why, pray tell, would he not give you what you need to grow in your experience? If he's going to give all in heaven in one gift, why wouldn't he give you what's necessary to change your life, to, power, to empower you to overcome? No, 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 of course he's going to give you this because he wants you in. He's for you, not against you. We're even told in verse 26 of Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and that even if we don't know how to pray, he'll teach us that. There literally is not a single deficiency in your experience that the Spirit of God does not have provision for. There's not a single one because God wants you there. The question is, what will we do with the pleadings of the Spirit? Because we're told in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 that, Behold, Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he who opens, I will come into him, and he with me will dine together. This is a beautiful promise. But how is it that Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts? I don't have a literal man from the Middle East pecking on my chest right now. But what do I have? I had the Holy Spirit speaking to me and telling me, Son, I don't have access to this area of your life. And I can change you, but will you let me in? Right? Those moments of conviction, he's using his spirit to knock on the door of our hearts. So we're gods at every step of our growth according to the imputed and imparted righteousness of Christ. And we can have assurance that we're in God and heaven bound when we remain in Christ. And John alludes to this twice in 1 John, that here's how we know that we know him, by his spirit whom he's given us. Right? 1 John 3.24 and 4.13. All right, back to Christ's object lessons. This robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it how many threads of human devising? None. Christ and his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us, to deliver in tangible fashion to us. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, we're told, and everything that we of ourselves can do. How much? Everything is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And sin is defined to be the transgression of the law. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of himself, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. So when on earth he said to his disciples, I have kept my Father's commandments. By Christ's perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Amen? By the perfect obedience of Christ, he can give you what you need to obey in what God asks. 
So we don't have to be afraid of what God asks anymore. You don't have to be afraid of conviction. You don't have to be afraid of the commandments or the requirements of God because we're told in other places that all of his biddings are enablings. That within the very command itself is the power of God to walk in the command. So we don't have to be afraid of what God asks. If he's asking for surrender, for the commandments, for transformation, for whatever, he actually has promised to give you power to walk in that. But am I willing? Will I submit to the process? And am I going to let my impatience yank me out of the soil before that growth comes to its completion? And this is what Satan wants to do to all of us. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged in his will, and the mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him, and then what happens? We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. And then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. It's from one of our publications, a review in Herald. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works and keeping the law is attempting what? An impossibility. Man cannot be saved without obedience. That's true. But his work should not be of himself. Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. And if a man could save himself by his own works, he might have something of himself in which to rejoice. But we don't. So let's not do that. But the effort that man makes in his own strength to obtain salvation is represented by the offering of who? Cain. Christless. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin. But that which is wrought through faith is acceptable to God. And when we seek to gain heaven through the merits of Christ, the soul will then be able to make progress. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we may go on from strength, from victory to victory, for through Christ the grace of God has worked out our complete salvation. Everything that's needed for your transformation, for your salvation, it's in there. It's all built in. This is why we can see in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Because walking according to the Spirit is confessing our sin and walking in obedience to the prompting of the Spirit. And if you mess up, come back and keep going. So, of course, then, this is going to deliver us from condemnation. And since we're receiving Christ's Spirit of surrender, we're doing it in Christ. And we'll close with this, Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? That if God is for us, and by the way, what we're seeing this morning is that God is actually for you. Amen? You're not fighting this battle of character development, of perfection or growth or whatever you want to refer to it as. You don't have to be afraid of this because that perfection is you being where you ought to be at every stage of development, not you being a superhuman mutant at the day of your conversion. Yeah? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us everything that we need? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Should tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, 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 no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. 
Your decisions may separate you from the presence of God, but never from the love of God. Amen? Because you have a lamb and a priest at your service, but he's left the choice with you. What decision will we make? A few closing thoughts. So what, then, what if the very person that we're afraid of disappointing the most, God, actually believes the very best things about you and is doing whatever it takes to see you saved and is asking you to respond? That would make the investigative judgment good news. It is good news. This is what gives us a reason to exist as a church prophetically and that we have a job that we can be doing right now in telling this to the world, that yes, your sin matters, but you have a Savior. You have a Savior who's willing to take you and transform your life and that you can be free from sin and that Jesus can enable you to overcome and that a judgment's happening right now where this matters. This brings a context to our message that's Christ-centered, that's hopeful, but also doesn't water down what we actually believe. God sees things in you that you don't see in you, and He wouldn't have you living in this stage of Earth's history unless He knew that He could sustain you. Some of us are horrified of living in the investigative judgment. Will I be good enough? I don't think I can stand. I'm just too weak. Why would God have you living at the stage that that's happening if He couldn't sustain you? The whole reason He has you here is because He sees something in you that you don't even see in you. Because through His strength, He could enable you to stand. So the question is, will you take hold of God's belief in you and in response to the faith of Jesus, exercise your faith in Jesus? That's the question. Now, I've had to do way too much in way, not way too little time, but I, I apologize for that. But has this made some form of sense today? Yes or no? That there is actual hope in the process of character transformation. There's total hope. Here's the point, guys. God views you as righteous while he makes you righteous, as long as you stay in the soil. And how fast you grow is none of your business. Just keep trusting the process and don't let Satan pull you out. Amen? Amen. And that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. That's the promise of the gospel. Jesus is not impotent. He's not weak. He can change even your life, and he can start that process today. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, I just pray that what has been shared this morning will, will make sense Lord, that there are seeds in our own hearts and minds that will remind us of the fact that if you started this process with us, you have no intention of leaving us. That though you can't bring sin into the sanctuary at some point in time, you still love us and you're doing what's necessary before that happens to empower us to stand when you have to change roles. We don't have to be afraid of the investigative judgment. We don't have to be afraid of it at all because the gospel and the investigative judgment go hand in hand. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. I pray that we would see that today and that this would awaken our appetite to study more for ourselves on this very topic. God, cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit to do all of these things that you promised to do for us today so that we can be with you on that sea of glass and every one of us in this room, I pray. And I ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.